This is Unstructured. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured. Unstructured is a chat with people who are changing the world around them through teaching, creating, or just living as an example. And when meeting folks who can learn from each other, be inspired, and maybe even make a new friend together. All right, we're off. Um, welcome to the initial episode of the Unstructured Podcast. And no better guest could be on this than Hunter Motts. I don't know if you'd call me a spinoff or a destroyed satellite of MMA, but essentially <laughs> that's where I am. And Hunter Motts, the troublemaker he is, is joining me today. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, I think that, you know, I, I mean, whether you're a destroyed satellite or a spinoff, you know, I think that you guys will surpass us on this podcast. I mean, Brian Callen and I have set the bar really low, so you'd really have to limbo under it to do a worse podcast than we do. Oh, please. Well, we need to start off with that thing. Um, this might be inside information, so you'll have to explain a little further. So who's Toto? Uh, well, I think the question is who was Toto? Well, then we're getting to that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I sort of have become fascinated by is, you know, there, uh, Marshall McLuhan used this expression, the global village. Um, mm -hmm. and there are dynamics within a hunter gatherer village that help keep it healthy. And it doesn't have to be a hunter gatherer village. It can be a soccer team. It can be, you know, any sort of unit. And part of that is teasing and nicknames. So I started experimenting last year with like, let's use more nicknames on the Internet so that it starts to feel a little bit more intimate, a little bit more playful, a little bit more healthy, a little bit less self-righteous. So I had to pick a nickname for myself. And I picked Toto um, because, uh, you know, Toto is a good trickster character. He pulls the curtain back and we see, oh, there's no wizard. There's only a man there. It had a certain emotional appeal to me because my mom's from Kansas and The Wizard of Oz is probably her favorite movie. Um, and then uh, last week um, I was doing my three must reads and uh, I started to get into it. And then I gave very much this introduction. And then Brian Callen was like, uh, Toto, even if I was a small shaggy dog, who was still a human, I wouldn't call myself Toto because it's the least masculine name possible. And then he proceeds to riff on the idea that Toto <laughs> is a shaved boy who dances in a golden cage and that for the right price, you could give him a squeeze and that I can't isn't in his vocabulary, gentlemen. So, I mean, it, I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, it was a brilliant piece of improv comedy. And then I actually saw Brian last week and I was like, you know, talking that and he's like i can't even remember what i said like <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah but i i mean i i don't know what i'm gonna do i mean isaiah Gooley uh has been really rooting for me to switch to jiminy cricket um because <laughs> he thinks that's my role in the podcast anyway regardless my role is uh to be some sort of small animal i'm not quite sure which one it is i'll take suggestions from your listeners okay how about this one the squid because you spray a lot of ink on a page. <laughs> um, that is definitely an inside baseball joke uh, for everybody who's listening. 
you know, one of <laughs> Eric's biggest pet peeves with me is the fact that uh, if brevity is the soul of wit, then my soul has no wit. <laughs> I can't take credit for that. That's Mike Spencer bound, but I thought it was oh, brilliant. Really? It is oh, yes. brilliant. It is really good. All right. Well, so leading off, you mentioned Kansas. Um, I know you've talked about your mom is from Kansas and your dad is Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked a little bit more about your mom's family. What kind of influence has that had on you um, being of the two different cultural environments and how does that affect uh, you? Huge is the short answer. Um, because, you know, I mean, I never really fit into either family. Like I, my dad never spoke Dutch to me as a kid because uh, he thought it was his understanding of language was entirely practical. And he's like, nobody speaks Dutch. All the Dutch speak English. Why would you learn Dutch? So, the result is, you know, you you then are there and you're hanging out with these people that you're biologically related to. You don't speak their language. So they're having to make this weird concession where they're talking in English to you and to your mother. You don't get many of the cultural references. The humor is different. You know, we haven't watched the same TV shows. We haven't read the same books. We're having very different experiences. And then on the other hand, you know, I always fit in much more with my mom's family in Kansas um, I felt much more comfortable there, probably honestly, because for, you know, the first 12 years of my childhood, I had way more of a relationship with my mom than with my dad. Um, so, you know, then I would go back every summer to Kansas and it was great. You know, I mean, it was like the perfect vacation, you know, there were, you would go down to the lake, there were boats, there was inner tubing, you know, there was barbecue. It was awesome. But there were always some sort of odd, awkward disconnects because, you know, I lived all over the world. You know, it was normal for because of my dad's side to speak lots of languages. And, you know, it was it was one thing with my own family. But when I would talk to like their friends, they would be like, who is this space alien? Hmm. Um, So, I mean, you know, I've I've been the odd man out for most of my life. So do you feel Uh, isolated or did you feel isolated growing up being always different than the folks around you, different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds, and never quite fit in or would that be fair? And I think that's entirely fair. And I would say that I uh, would never have really admitted that as a kid. Um, It's taken a long time to get comfortable with the fact that you know, that was my experience. And I don't know that any other human growing up that way would have had a different experience. Um, so as a kid, you wouldn't have known to admit it though. You wouldn't be sophisticated enough to say, Oh, I feel isolated. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't, you don't have that vocabulary. You don't really understand what those experiences and those feelings are. And then on top of that, you know, all the adults, you know, mostly like my dad grew up in Arnhem. Like that's where he grew up. He grew up in that one town in which is in southern Holland uh, near the border with Germany. And then, you know, my mom grew up in Kansas City. So they had a fairly stable cultural environment that they were growing up in. So they never had this experience of having to navigate many cultures at the same time. So out of curiosity, when you went home um, and had summers in Kansas, did that feel like home and then perhaps you were ripped away from it or am I reading too much into this? I no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I definitely felt much more comfortable, uh, cause you know, I would, I was at English boarding school as well. So like there's another huge mm. different cultural environment 
definitely did not feel at home or feel welcome there. So, you know, being at an English boarding school and then going to Kansas, it felt much more like home. And honestly, you know, sort of, you know, we all have sort of utopian visions. And most most of my utopian visions as a kid were about going to an American high school and having that, you know, movie all American high school experience. It seemed great as far as I could tell. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there there was a real, real appeal there. And, you know, I mean, of course, my and then, you know, the the sort of seeing what my cousin's experience of all of that and then sort of seeing how that has played out over the last 10, 20 years in terms of horizons and expectations and, um, you know, what people think is possible for them based on where they grow up. Um, yeah. Well, I notice you've clung more to a Midwestern accent, naturally speaking, than English, considering how much um, education you've had in Britain. I One deliberately you'd have more. I deliberately avoided an English accent. I actually made a point to get rid of it um, because, uh, you know, accents, dialect, it's all a cultural marker. And we're always using that stuff as a rule of thumb to figure out who people are, where they come from. You start downloading all your assumptions about those people and their beliefs. And uh, having an English accent just came freighted with all this baggage. And what I noticed as well is, especially when you have an English accent in an American context, People listen to the accent. They don't listen to what you're saying. Oh, you get 10, uh, IQ, uh, 10 IQ points by default. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I didn't want those IQ points. <laughs> I wanted to be a destroyed satellite. <laughs> oh, that's mine. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> I did notice, though, you seem to talk more about your mom and that extended part of the family and, and less about your father. Um, he's kind of a mystery. I've, I've kind of gotten the vibe of economic hitman, but I don't know exactly who or what. And I, I'd be really interested to know. I'm trying to go places that I don't think you've really discussed in other interviews that I've heard. Well, that was what I was uh, actually really thinking about a lot in terms of this interview. You know, Thaddeus Russell did his interview with Brian Callen, and you made a comment on that, that, you know, he'd really succeeded in opening up Brian Callen and that you'd like to see him give me the same treatment. And I was like, I bet Eric's going to take a crack at this in our conversation. So I'm willing to do it, man. Let's do it. I just um, don't have the skills. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you think you're doing pretty well. I mean, you know, I'm feeling vulnerable and feeling psychologically safe. So, you know, I'm more than happy to, you know, talk about my dad. And I mean, you know, honestly, as I sort of alluded to earlier in the conversation, you know, uh, <laughs> the first time I can't remember the first or second time I met Chris Ryan, like he was like, oh, so your dad was an economic hitman. And yeah, like Brian Callen's dad, um, Big Mike, my dad worked at Citibank. They worked there together. Big Mike was my dad's boss. And, you know, my father was hard charging on that whole 70s, 80s like career, 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 career thing. And so he really wasn't around for the first 12 years of my life. And I resented that. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's why I had much more of a relationship with my mom. And then my dad had hired, um, this was after he left Citibank, he'd hired this industrial psychologist named Pat Dunn. Um, and Pat, uh, you know, he and Pat were having a conversation. She was like, is there anything else you want to talk to talk about? And he says, well, I have a son. And I don't really know him. 
Um, and, you know, Pat was like, are you going to do something about that? And so he decided to do something about it. And so suddenly at like age 10 or 10 or 12, my father started making a real effort to be in my life, but was just so bad at it. Like he just didn't have the skills. Like he literally went on a business trip to America and brought back like a baseball glove and a baseball and was like, we're going to play catch. And you've never seen two less coordinated people like less interested in the sport of baseball trying to very badly play the game of catch. And then there was a, he got like a stargazing thing, which never really came out of the box. And then there was like a boomerang, but it was all these attempts at father son activities. We went scuba diving and then, you know, we were like scuba diving on the buddy system. And then there was a miscommunication while we were down at the bottom of the sea, my tank was out of oxygen. And so then I like, I needed to go up. I like showed the gauge to the instructor. I thought that what had been communicated with the instructor was that I should go up. And then my father didn't understand that. So he, then he's panicked on the bottom of the ocean looking for me. He, you know, it, it just became a whole clusterfuck. And then he snapped at me. So, you know, this activity that was supposed to be a father son bonding activity. Now there's like all of that. So, you know, and I mean, I mean, you know, if you listen to mixed mental arts, like I talk a lot about emotions. And part of the reason why I talk a lot about emotions is because, you know, my father did not grow up knowing how to talk about emotions. Um, And so, you know, that's. um, Yeah, so that that's that's I mean, you know, that's sort of been a long struggle and a long struggle for both of us. Do you have any siblings? Uh, No, I'm a lonely only. Lonely only. Okay. Yeah. Do your parents have siblings? Uh, my mother is one of seven. Um, uh-huh. My my father has a, a sister, and then he has a bunch of half brothers and half sisters. And what kind of um, age spread is it? Uh, well, the I mean, my mother's the oldest, um, and then you know my uncle Joe is the youngest, and he, you know it's like a. I mean, you know, you have seven kids that spread out over a decade or two. Sure. You might be older than an uncle, for example. No, not that. Not quite that bad. I mean, my uncle Joe doesn't, I mean, he doesn't show his age. I don't know what mixture of skincare products he's using, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think uncle Joe and I would agree that he is older than me. Um, but okay. there were, I mean, you know, even, yeah, I mean like hanging out with uncle Joe, I mean, uncle Joe was more like the cool older brother than the uncle because the age spread was was small enough between how about on your him. father's side your father um, and his sibling yeah so my mother my father is the oldest and then my uh aunt is like two three years younger not much younger okay but then so. there's this whole other family the half brothers and half sisters um and the half brothers and half sisters are from my grandfather's first marriage and then my mm. grandfather married his nurse who is my grandmother. Um, I see. So that happened. <laughs> so your father may have had some isolation growing up too. Uh, I th- There's no doubt. My dad never really fit into Dutch culture. Um, <laughs> he always had, he always had issues with it and always wanted to get the fuck out of Dodge. Like he was very clear on that from a fairly early age and was just trying to figure out what his way out was. Um, and almost got, if you, you know, want a, exclusive almost got recruited by the KGB to go to Russia. Oh wow. 
Because <laughs> he spoke Russian or? Yeah, he, he basically, I mean, my father, you know, every time they wanted him to take a new class, he would take a language. He was like, okay, mm. what language haven't I taken yet? Um, and so he, for example, ended up taking Swedish because it was what all the porn films in the 1960s and 70s were sold. in. Sold, done. He wanted to know what they were saying. Um, he l- watched porn for the dialogue. Um, did, like, did the dialogue get any better in Swedish than English? <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. There, there, there was a lot more mentions of Lingonberry, but uh, that was about <laughs> it. Um, so... Anyway, and so at some point he took Russian and then I don't know the full story, but basically he got offered a scholarship to, you know, Moscow State University or, you know, the University of Kiev or something like that. And my grandfather's face turned white when he heard this and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Do you not understand? And so they literally expunged from his records all mention of him having taken Russian, him having done any of that. And they made sure that he got a scholarship to America um, to get him the fuck away from there. And he was perfectly happy. I mean, he was happy to like, just, you know, and we, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast we did with, um, Martin Totland, which isn't out yet, but you know, um, there for, for people who grew up in places like Holland and Sweden and things like that, the, you know, the uh, American opportunity to be a real individual, to sort of really speak out, to really stand out, to really be excellent is often very, very appealing because it's the opposite of, you know, what those cultures are about, which is about fitting in, sort of doing humility. Art, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, okay. So well, America was sense. the promised land for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense then why um, he was so focused and saying, learn English. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like he, he had, was erasing it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. It wasn't just that he didn't think it was practical. It's that he didn't have any particularly fond feelings towards um, Dutch culture. And I mean, his feelings on that have definitely mellowed. Um, mm-hmm. He's increasingly, you know, with age, he's come to realize the things that Holland does very well. Um, and you know, there is real value to that ability to like actually have community actually do, you know, sort of pull together, work together. Um, that a lot of those, you know, Northern European countries do very, very well. That's awesome. Do you, um, do you see him more now and how how are you guys doing? Actually, I mean, now we have, um, a great relationship and a lot of our relationship is over books and ideas and trying to figure out how to apply these ideas in the real world. That's our baseball, honestly, like, <laughs> you know, um, and so, you know, I mean, we, we Skype regularly, we see each other once or twice a year cause my parents live in Dubai. So obviously okay. that's a bit, I can't just pop over there for a Sunday roast. Um, and, uh, you know, but yeah, we, we, you know, we Skype, we talk a lot more and, you know, it's, it's been very helpful. He enjoys the podcast a lot is always suggesting guests. Um, you know, can I suggest a guest? You can always do that. Eric Hundley. You, how about your dad? Well, I, you know, Sean McCoy requested the same thing. And actually Sean McCoy's request was Brian's dad, my dad, and then Brian and me that foursome, um, which I think would be, that'd be cool. But I would do that after. I would. First, I would agree. You, you had a few with Mike Callen. I think yeah. you should do one with your dad. Then yeah, then yep. break offs. Those would be awesome. Yep. 
Yep. We can, we can definitely do that because I mean, you know, you won't have to talk to my dad for very long or listen to my dad very long to see his fingerprints all over me. Um, <laughs> both, both, you know, impressions that he's left and then things that I'm reacting against. Um, and again, have had to learn to mellow a bit on and understand. I mean, you know, that's just so much of the process. You grow up, you know what you don't want. You try and be the opposite. And then you're like, oh, wait, I've gone a little too far. What's what's the balance here? Sure. Now, you met Brian, obviously, through your family connection. Um, I know that he was essentially the first house you visited when you were born, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you don't remember. But... Um, <laughs> Did you keep in touch with Brian and Mike Callan throughout the years or did you kind of drift apart and then kind of fell back in later? No, our, our families have like intersected for decades and decades and decades. I mean, um, my mom used to babysit, uh, Brian's nephews when they were living in London and my parents were living in France. Um, mm. I tutored Brian's nephews, um, you know, uh, my mom and Aunt Vic, uh, you know, have seen each other a million times over the years and like, you know, would do all sorts of things together. Um, and then the relationship between my father and Big Mike is interesting. Um, but, you know, one of the most salient points is that, you know, my father. So my father had really I mean, you know, as far as I understand it, but you know, there was a series of pivotal moments in his career. Like part of it was, you know, that he wanted to spend more time with it. Part of it is, is that he did get dis disillusioned with the whole economic hitman thing. Um, mm. And, you know, on a, on a personal level, on a personal safety level, I mean, you know, when we lived in Greece, um, he was the target of this terrorist group called November 17. Mm -hmm. Um, and he asked the bank to transfer him. They refused to transfer him. They said, we have lots of people in dangerous places all over the world. If we transfer you, we'd have to transfer everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, which is uh, totally understandable and fair it's as a called policy. business, but yeah, it's called business. And if you're not that invested in me, then, you know, why should I be invested in you? And then, um, while he was at, um, another bank, he was asked to sign off on some books that had been cooked by Arthur Anderson with some off balance mm. sheet accounting. This Early in the 90s. Yep. And he was like, I can't sign these books. And then they're like, you're fired. Um, so those experiences left a very bad taste in his mouth. And then, you know, he'd spent lots of time in lots of places. I think probably, you know, I mean, there are certain things that I know about his time in Brazil and like there's this pivotal experience with the Brazilian debt in the eighties, um, that he was a part of. Um, and you know, I think there was a, he was, he was disillusioned and lost honestly for a long time. And he was, you know, doing entrepreneurial things that were very interesting. Like, you know, he sold Next Computers, which was the Steve Jobs sure. uh, sort of, yeah, yeah. So he did that and knew Steve a little bit. Um, wow. And apparently was, Steve hated him. So that was that. Um, <laughs> because, you know, my dad had other ideas than Steve did, and that wasn't something that Steve enjoyed. Um, well, so, I have a feeling strong personalities, both. Um, yeah. Steve was the voice in the room, period. Yeah, From obviously. everything I've read or seen. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so he, he had a series of interesting experiences, but he was pretty lost. And then, you know, um, 
Big Mike helped my dad get get into consulting, and that's when he started to find his footing again. Um, so, cool. I mean, our our families like, I mean, there's there's just a a, a lot that has happened, and um, you know, Aunt Vic, uh, you know, my parents weren't doing very financially well when I went off to college, and um, you know, Aunt Vic bought my computer for hmm. for no no, I mean, you know, no other reason than that she's generous as 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 all get out. Um, that's Brian's mother or yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so big Mike and aunt Vic. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean like it's, it's just, there's been a lot back and forth over the years. And then, you know, Brian and I were actually at a, uh, birth, some sort of barbecue or birthday party at his sister's house. And we were having a conversation about Republic lost and so damn much money. And, <laughs> uh, you know, Basically, I was like, Brian, you know, you could get these people on the show. And he's like, really? They would talk to me? And I was like, hell yeah. So <laughs> so that's how we ended up getting, that's how we ended up, like, I started booking guests on the Brian Callen show. And here we are 300 episodes later. Okay, awesome. You went right exactly where I wanted to be, how you started doing the guests. One thing I do sense between you and Brian going throughout, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I feel like you guys have a real guilt about the uh, economic hitman and and e- some of the ways you you respond is like you're reacting to that past. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably fair. Um, I mean, there's certainly the guilt of you know what what uh, like Brian's line, like we saw great poverty from inside an air conditioned car. Sure. And, you know, I mean, if you're, you know, I mean, we, it's, di- it's different countries like Brian, it was India and, you know, Pakistan and places like that. You know, for me, it was much more Brazil, but the experience of that sort of massive wealth inequality, uh, and you know, you're a kid. So if you're a kid, there's like no way that you could ever justify that you earned this. Like you'd have to believe in the divine right of Kings to think there's sure. a reason. Yeah. So I think there was, there was that. Um, I think that also both of our parents had very strong values. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Mike, big Mike really believes in fair play. That's a large part mm-hmm. of what he believes in, you know, uh, for my father, I mean, all, all of my dad's family were doctors. They're doctors mm-hmm. for centuries back. And so mm-hmm. a lot of my father's thinking and my own thinking are really, you know, the physician's code, the Hippocratic Oath, and mm-hmm. that sense of responsibility to do no harm. Um, so as, as you're, you have those values floating around, and then there's all this economic hitman behavior. You're coming to understand, you know, these experiences like Enron and long-term capital management and all these other companies that, you know, failed and caused havoc and wrecked people's lives. You know, that's just going to rub up against your values again and again sure. and again. And ultimately, <laughs> you end up thinking... You have to think really long and hard. And so I think that what Brian and I have been trying to solve for really our whole lives is, you know, how do you have an equitable and fair society, right? And, you know, at the same time, like, I mean, obviously this comes out much more in the way that Brian talks than the way that I talk, but, you know, both of us and both of our families have a real recognition that like the sort of obvious answer of you just share shit equally 
like we're just going to be communists, doesn't actually mm -hmm. work. It doesn't solve that problem um, because in, a, in the end, all the power ends up being concentrated in the people who are divvying the stuff up. And sure. yeah, so I, I mean, I think, make, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think there is a real, real discomfort there. Um, and, you know, trying to, uh, yeah. And, and, and add on to that, all of the confusion of just knowing how, not how, not knowing how to make sense of all these different cultures. Like a lot of the obvious answers are gone. So yeah, I think that's entirely fair. I mean, it all really started out of us being, you know, just having a lot of questions and knowing we didn't have the answers and then just looking around anywhere we could to try and cobble them together. Okay. I noticed you gravitate towards some cultural things um, and works. Like um, one thing you focused on is Adam Smith, how he had another book. Mm -hmm. What I was wondering is you point out how everybody pays attention to Adam Smith and his economics, but they completely ignore his altruism angle. Would you consider Thomas Sowell to be the reverse? That um, culture is the focus in, for example, MMA all the time, but don't really discuss economics. And he does have a lot of work on that. Well, I, I mean, again, like what work we resonate with, like for me, like somebody actually brought this up on Twitter yesterday and they were like, you know, <laughs> the tweet was so funny. It was like, how can you, uh, you've read Thomas Sowell. How can you allow him to compliment unsafe at any speed? And what was funny to me is the idea that I like have control over Brian's brain, which is the oddest idea ever. Um, but the, um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, to be honest with Thomas Sowell, I've only ever read Black, Red, and X, White Liberals. It's the only book that I've ever read based on Big Mike. And I would love to read more of his stuff and love to read more of his economics. But I 100% think that, I mean, even from what's in Black, Red, and X, and White Liberals, like, it's, it's very clear that the sort of nanny state, welfare state has disempowered people and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, led to a lack of personal responsibility and a lack of self-efficacy and all of that. So I think, you know, for me, it's not the, the I, I, you know, in my sort of evolving worldview, the goal is not to have a nanny state, right? Like right. I think the nanny state is just the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of softer version of the same basic communist thinking. Um, it's just, you know, not as willing to use as overt coercion. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, um, but I think, I think the, uh, the, the question coercion there, with a comfy pillow. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the gentle coercion. Um, you know, what is it? It's, what is it? Uh, it's like, uh, coercion in, in a velvet glove or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say, I mean, for me, the main thing actually with Adam Smith's other book is not so much the altruism. It's the, um, it's the fact that we have all these competing instincts and mm -hmm. that that's how Adam Smith understood the human mind. So he certainly wouldn't have believed in homo economicus or rational agent theory because he understood mm -hmm. that we were massively conflicted, had lots and lots of impulses. Um, and so it does become massively problematic for people who try and use his work to, you know, point towards sort of whatever this neoliberal 
uh, sort of, you know, single variable explanation that it's about the individual and it's about self and, you know, selfishness and like every man for himself, that version of economics. But I, in the end, I, I don't think that, I mean, it's this, it's, you know, Adam Smith, no different from Jesus or Muhammad, the dude's mm-hmm. dead. Like, we're not sure. going to know what he really meant. Um, and, you know, we can definitely glean lots of insight from there, but to an extent we have to now, you know, understand that our teachers are dead and then just do our best right now. But I, I, I think even though I haven't really read Thomas Sowell, what I've gleaned from black rednecks, white liberals, you know, I think that absolutely his idea that you have, you know, that you have, uh, overly mothered people, and that they don't have self-efficacy and personal responsibility is spot on. I would agree with that 100%. But to me, that's part of culture because part of what culture is supposed to do is it's supposed to take you from a baby to being a capable, resilient individual who can pull their weight in the tribe. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and even if you look at what happens in education and you know high school in America, you know a lot of the basic skills that are required for citizenry are no longer taught. Like there's there's no wealth management, you know, mm-hmm. shop class, home uh, economics, home economics, govern an understanding of how government works so you can be yep. an effective citizen. So the point is is that, you know, and this is it's it's not all necessarily malicious. A lot of it comes out of the myopic obsession with jobs. So STEM. it's like, yeah, exactly. So I I think that, you know, we haven't produced capable citizens. Like that's that's not what our, our system produces. Um, so yeah. On that note, ironically speaking, it's a myopic focus on jobs, but it's specific jobs and specifically to get people into college. Whereas former things that existed, I'm a child of the, eighties. Uh, I went to high school and graduated in 88. We were the last of the group who had auto shop and yep. shop shop. Those are jobs. And they're very viable, great livings now. And they can't fill them. My father was a general contractor. He could not hire enough people to sustain a good business. So he had Mm -hmm. to get just enough work to keep people busy, but he couldn't bid out any other jobs because he wouldn't be able to complete them because no talent. Yep. And I mean, that's that's a lot of the conversation that I've been having with John Aguilar and Adam Hansen is that there's, you know, the, the, I'm, I might be wrong on the numbers here, but seven, there's a shortage of 750,000 people in the skilled trades. More than that. And so, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think that's that's part of the big opportunity for um, for, for people, for, for mixed mental arts is to really make it clear to people that you can have a good fulfilling living in places that is the skilled trades, you know, in the restaurant business, in whatever it may be that doesn't necessarily require a college degree, or even if you have a college degree that you may want to pivot over to those things. Um, but, you know, because I think what, what this all comes down to is that is there is a story that has been told and there are emotions that have been wrapped in things, right? So, you know, the, I mean, people's prejudices around college degree versus not college degree, right? Mm-hmm. You've basically, you know, you've used emotion and storytelling to create a caste system, right? There's the high mm-hmm. caste, doctors, lawyers, all those sorts of people. And then, you know, the skilled trades, that's a lower class, right? White collar versus blue collar, right? You mean They're, winners versus losers. Exactly. Because that's and, literally how we are taught. 
Yeah. I, I was in the 80s and I was taught you either go to college or you dig a ditch. Mm-hmm. Those and are your options. A, and digging a ditch <laughs> makes you an untouchable. It's shameful. Yep. Um, and, you know, that's that's not a good way to construct a society because you've mm-hmm. now cut out your foundation like you don't have people to get your your whole society to work and i mean you know part of i know you were in the military and mm-hmm. um you know uh john adam and then the, had a conversation with art crow who was a flight instructor at the uh in the marine corps um and we were talking about you know what what is the culture of the marines and that a lot of it is that you know there's a real recognition that nobody in the marine corps can effectively do their job without every other person so the guy who's out there doing on his hands and knees scrubbing something or doing something not particularly glamorous you know is mm-hmm. just as vital to making you know to completing the mission as the general and I think that's one thing that, you know, the cultures of the world definitely need is the much, army marches much, on its stomach. There you go. So, I mean, <laughs> that's, I mean, and then therefore the quartermaster, although he's not necessarily in the front lines, <laughs> is just as vital. Critical. Mm-hmm. Um, spinning off that, out of curiosity, we kind of talked a little bit about political from... Thomas Sowell, et cetera. You've called yourself a Rockefeller Republican. That's about <laughs> the best I've seen for where you kind of lie. And I'm not asking you to completely label yourself. I'm just getting a general feel of where you are, or where you're evolving, or what your thoughts are. And you don't have to say, oh, I'm Republican or I'm Democrat or left. Or Huge, right. Trump Huge Trump fan. Huge Trump fan. Oh, excellent. <laughs> No, Excellent. I mean, um, no, I mean, yeah, I use the Rockefeller Republican label because that seemed like the best fit one, um, you know, and I, I mean, I again, like I haven't recently looked at Nelson Rockefeller's full presidential platform, and I'm sure much of it would hold up 50, 60 years later. But the basic idea of the Rockefeller Republican is, you know, uh, fiscal conservative uh, social liberal, right? Okay. So a libertarian you know, bent then. Yeah, I mean, I guess small L. Yeah, small L libertarian or classic classic liberal. Yeah, I mean, what I you know, I mean, and that's all these terms get thrown around, and what are they're trying to like give people an easy sort of kludge into understanding where you're coming from. Sure. For for me, the biggest thing is is that you know, a lot of it is also. I mean, Nelson Rockefeller was from New York. A lot of New York culture is still that New Amsterdam Dutch culture, um, (laughs) which is we we don't give a shit where you're where you come from, what you call God, whether you have a God, you know, uh, who you sleep with, any of these other things. The important thing is trade. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's the real goal. So. And I, I think there's a lot of value to that mindset. I think that, you know, humans, ha- we all are going to have to be much, much more discerning about what we care about and what we're like, that's a personal choice. Run with it. You know, it's all good. Um, Do you but yeah, have a God? I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to pull a Spiros here and say, what is God is the first question. Because if you like, do I conceptualize like... Um, like, I think there is a process at work in the universe. There is. Okay. As far as I think that's what all of the science adds up to is, um, and we're going to be doing like Adrian Bejan, like that book, The Physics of Life, starts to mm-hmm. get at that, right? There are, 
there are, um, you know, I don't know what the words are, but like higher power, the, maybe of a sort or uh, it's, it's if anything, it's a lower power. It's really okay. like there are, there are rules baked into the universe and how the universe works that selects and tends towards certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so like maybe, yeah, well, I would, I mean, it's, it's really, to me, it's evolutionary, right? So mm-hmm. In terms of evolution, so there's a great book, um, someone that I really want to, that we're going to get on the podcast, uh, Cesar Hidalgo, who is a physicist who became an economist. um, And he wrote a book called Why Information Grows. And so, you know, a lot of this comes down to, is there directionality in the universe? Like, does the universe tend towards something? And then if the universe tends towards something, right? Because often, you know, if you hear someone like Dawkins talk, you know, it'll just sound like, oh, evolution is just sort of like random shit happening all the time. Nothing is inherently Mm -hmm. better than anything else. Um, But there, you know, if you look across the, the course of evolutionary history, there is a tendency towards complexity towards organization towards larger and larger social groupings right so peter turchin's ultra society you know you get these bigger and bigger and bigger societies that are more cooperative um so i think there's a selection pressure towards a self-organizing principle in the universe right which is then balanced out by the fact that you know there is all this disorder, right? So if you look at our bodies as a system, we order ourselves at the expense of disordering the rest of the universe. So mm-hmm. um, it's basically, it's that tension and that over time that selects towards more cooperative, more organized things. Now, you know, for me, the real question is where did the laws of the universe come from, right? And you're gonna hear people say, we live in a multiverse, there's infinite numbers of universes, and then mm-hmm. ours is the one where life showed up. So anthropic principle, we wouldn't be around to ask the question if we didn't have the kind of universe that enabled our kind of life that can ask those questions. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that there's one universe and some guy sat around, you know, on a cloud and like wrote out the laws and that's why the universe works that it does. For me, the main thing is those questions, like we just don't have the data. Like to to, to fall on one side of these questions or another, mm-hmm. I just don't think the data is clear. I mean, you, you know, think we sort of capacity, even if we did have the data, I mean, could this be so far beyond our ability to comprehend or understand that even given the data, are we smart enough? Yeah, I mean that's that's a real question. I think individually none of us is smart enough. I think that's 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 sort of one of the big findings of the science is that individual humans were quite dumb. Um and you know there was Sold. a great that's me. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's a great Keynes quote, uh John Maynard Keynes quote that I read which is and it was something like uh you know an individual left to think on his own for long enough will come to some truly stupid conclusions. <laughs> You know, and if if you do, if you just sort of like, you know, I mean, I've I've had periods of my life, I mean, especially as a kid where you're trying to figure it out all all on your own um, and you come up with all sorts of ideas and then, you know, you have contact with somebody else who wrote a book a few hundred years ago or you talk to somebody who's had a different experience and suddenly you're like, oh, this thing that I cooked up on my own was truly dumb. And that's because inherently our intelligence is social. 
and we need to run up against people who think differently in order for the ideas that we currently hold to get to be any good. Um, so I think that, you know, the, I think that there are better answers than the ones that we have. And I sure. think those answers will emerge as we are, you know, more and more cooperative. And it won't be that we don't compete. We'll compete. It's just always what has changed over human history is the what the playing field is. What are we mm -hmm. competing on, right? And what what are the rules of the game? So, you know, obviously in the, in the Middle Ages, it was really no holds barred, right? Mm -hmm. Violence was allowed and all of that. And increasingly we are moving towards a marketplace of ideas where ideas compete, but, you know, we aren't, we're, we don't spend our time questioning the worth of other human beings. We just spend our time testing each other's ideas. On the competition angle, could you see a parallel with, let's say, instead of um, football or what, or soccer, or what have you, going against one another, that maybe we need to compete more like in cycling with a peloton because there's a degree of cooperation even while competing, the entire group is going faster, drafting off one another, working within in certain groups, and progressing forward. So, yes, one person may come out as the winner, but different people win at different times. And as a whole, the entire group is really progressing forward. Yep. I think that's what excites me. And part of what I liked about the mixed martial arts analogy is that, again, there are whoever wins one match or the other, right? In my, I mean, I'm sure that the people who are in the ring, like it matters to them whether they're the winner or the loser. But the really impressive thing is how has the art form evolved over the last 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And it is just, you know, I mean, tremendous progress because there is that we're all constantly trying to improve and improve our game. So that's what I would like to see is, is that ultimately, you know, even if, if you win, I win. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you know, like, okay, great. Steve Jobs was a multi-billionaire. He won, mm -hmm. except I won too because I'm using an Apple Mac. Sure. I didn't have to design. I didn't have to organize a whole company. I didn't have to spend all my time doing it. And to me, that's the real magic of capitalism is, is that it is an evolutionary system. That's the point of the free market. And, you know, if we, if we really believe in the free market, we should be looking at how we can have a more dynamic, you know, even more competitive evolutionary mm -hmm. system. The problem is, is that, you know, those kids in the favelas, you know, they're, they're not competing within the big big ecosystem right <laughs> there's obviously market comp competition within the favela but they don't they can't even enter the game uh, sure that that a lot of us are playing well steve jobs is a good example too because i never felt that he was about the money no he was about legacy and building something that was greater than himself um, Apple was his crown achievement and building the organization was his biggest, biggest thing. And all the money he was carrying about was Apple's money. He really didn't come out with the money like Bill Gates or others. All of his money came from Pixar and selling yeah. that. And I mean, so ultimately, ironic. I think that's the other thing, too, is, you know, exactly like what what he cared about was purpose. You know, he had a goal and even like beyond purpose, aesthetics, you know, mm -hmm. he wanted to make beautiful objects and so much of his thinking, 
you know, was clearly influenced by his exposure to Japanese culture and the ability to sort of harmonize all the elements and create really mm -hmm. beautifully designed things. So, um, and I his mean, father. I, yeah, and his father, um, which is always <laughs> a big influence. Um, and the fact that he was an orphan, I mean, that he was adopted. Mm. Um, sure. So, you know, I mean, I, but I, but I think that, you know, that's, the the idea like what you'll often hear in America is this idea that the the primary motivation is money and if you aren't allowing people to be motivated with money that the system won't work but mm -hmm. i that doesn't fit with my own experience of human nature it doesn't fit with my observation of people like Steve Jobs like there are so many other motivations and in fact i mean i think daniel pink summarizes it nicely with the motivation 1.0 motivation 2.0 motivation 3.0 um which do you know that um one that uh, it's a essentially an oppression versus a um later on we evolved to in different societies i don't know enough to do it so please explain yeah yeah so so motivation 1.0 is fear and oppression that's right. Which is very much how, you know, Hobbes' Leviathan, that's how medieval societies were run, right? You whip the serfs, you whip the slaves, and that's how you get them to work. If you step out of line, we send you to the tower and we execute you. Well, it's not a very good motivational system. Sure. Like, Dar as Darren Osmoglu says, you could put a gun to a man's head and make him lift a box. You can't put a gun to a man's head and make him have an idea. Um, right. So those societies didn't go very far. You know, with Adam Smith, you see motivation 2.0, which is extrinsic motivation, right? Which is now we're using the carrot more. It's like, if you do this, you can make lots of money and I'll pay you. And then mm -hmm. that, that becomes that motivation. But there's a motivation beyond that, right? Which is motivation 3.0, which is intrinsic motivation, which is what Steve Jobs had, right? Mm -hmm. What you're pursuing is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And... Those people who aren't doing it for financial rewards and for whom financial rewards can actually fuck up their motivation, mm -hmm. um, you know, because uh, they're now no longer thinking just about purpose and, you know, they're having to think about these things that aren't interesting. But motivation 3.0 takes people further, makes them more creative, makes them more productive, and ultimately produces far better results. So... That's, I think that, Thaddeus Russell is rebelling against motivation 2.0. I, I think Thaddeus Russell is rebelling against a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's definitely the rebellious, the, 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 the rebel uh, with or without a cause within the podcasting uh, community. Well, the uh, motivation 2.0 is, I think he would almost describe that as a Protestant work ethic. And um, that whole angle, and he's probably wanting to rush to um, 3.0 in what I've read where, you know, work is just a means to the end. So being inspiring and, and doing something great, I'm still trying to get a handle on his angle. I think he is too, personally. What? He is uh, a rebel? I don't think he, com well, he's a rebel, but I don't think he's completely um, narrowed down exactly how he feels yet either. No, I think he's definitely hashing things out. Um, I mean, I think we all are to some extent. But I think the the interesting thing about Thaddeus is, you know, it's the amount, uh, 
like for example, did you you know in the Brian Callan Thaddeus thing, his mm-hmm. uh, his his sort of counter narrative on World War II? I'm I'm really eager to um, read that book when it comes out because it's a different angle. I love being challenged and I love reading things that go against my opinion. It may not change, but I'm very interested. And I also want to visit the other three episodes with Thaddeus and Brian and you. Um, because you kind of, I feel like, have shifted a little or you were just reacting positively with Thaddeus. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, there's there's been so much talk in the podcast community about postmodernism, you know, <laughs> for some people. Oh, not that one, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but the, the uh, you know, I mean... So, you know, we did, we've, we did 300 episodes or we've done 200 episodes or whatever. And then, I mean, you know, the thing that I kept thinking about is, you know, there's this George Bernard Shaw quote that all the economists laid to end to end would never reach a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, they're great. There are all these ideas, but now it seems to me that the real work and what we should be doing as podcasters, what we should be doing, you know, in this intellectual dark web, if that's what you want to call <laughs> it, um, is starting to a, you know, connect the dots, you know, and start working together um, mm-hmm. and start trying to synthesize these ideas together because that's how it starts to add up to something that can be actionable and have real world change. Um, and have impact, right? It has to become sort of a coherent framework. And that coherent mm-hmm. framework can continue to evolve and evolve and evolve as new information comes up. It should. Um, but, you know, so that there there was, I mean, a lot of last year was like, okay, Chris Ryan, like he has a big podcast. Like, let's figure mm-hmm. out who this guy is. Let's form a relationship there. Same thing with Thaddeus. And part of the surprise for, you know, both Thaddeus and Brian and me was how productive that conversation was because we mm-hmm. all definitely had preconceived notions about each other. Like Thaddeus sure. talked about this in the interview with Brian. He was like, oh, I thought I was just going to come into this conversation and just get reamed about postmodernism and it was going to be another one of those. And then, you know, I barely touched it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I read Renegade, I, I read the Renegade history and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is sort of fascinating. Um, because, you know, it is sort of revealing the sort of standard narratives and revealing what they leave out. And I, the thing that I most discovered in that conversation, which excited me about that conversation is that Thaddeus Russell was the perfect person to talk to about taxonomy, which I Mm -hmm. would, would, I mean, it makes perfect sense retrospectively, but in, at the time it didn't. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's what race is. That's what gender is all of these things are taxonomies and you know a guy like Thaddeus has a it, it was it was a great example of what Adam Hansen calls that mix of homophily and heterophily so we had enough in common and enough differences for the conversation to be mm. productive um because you know like obviously he knows the history sure. uh, and I'm much more comfortable with the biology uh the relevant biology um and you know we we're able to sort of really both come and sort of pick apart, you know, race as one example and sort of see what does that taxonomy capture and what doesn't it capture? Um, well, I noticed on that, um, he and Brian were talking about, um, different medical agencies. I think, um, AMA came up and mm-hmm. regulatory bodies and, you know, there was a kind of a libertarian, um, angle on some of it. 
Now, the reason why it struck me was that Brian was saying, well, you know, we kind of don't we need the AMA to sort of look out at, you know, what's going on with the doctors, et cetera. And this to me was a direct spin out of the episode with Peter Schiff. Mm -hmm. And um, you kind of cornered Peter Schiff and have made a deal out of it uh, about (laughs) regulatory agencies um, with pharmaceutical. I think FDA specifically came up in that. And Brian was a little bit cowed. And I felt like many episodes later with Thaddeus, Brian was, you know, he kind of flipped the line or he switched on. He was saying, well, we need the AMA. And Thaddeus was like, why? Why do we? And you were sort of um, assisting or agreeing with Thaddeus. I don't know if you were just being agreeable or you actually agreed, but I did notice it as a distinct shift from one point to another. So are are you evolving on the subject or? Well, And I think it's this also comes down to, you know, what my perspective and what I think my role is in all of this, because, you know, uh, the the interesting thing, I think, is, um, you know, uh, firstly, do I think that regulatory bodies are helpful? Yes. Uh, You know, I mean, as I said to Peter Schiff, like if you want to reform the FDA, I'm right there with you. you know, I don't think that I think that all institutions are in constant need of reexamination reform. So that's that. And I don't know how much power or what powers the FDA or the AMA should have. The interesting thing in that conversation with Thaddeus was just to challenge all of Brian's sacred cows. Like that that was that was really the point of that conversation, I think, is, you know, to sort of un, un, unpack and sort of break down a lot of these ideas like race. And, you know, um, but, you know, I mean, what I what I loved about that conversation was that line that Thaddeus had about truth having always been the favorite tool of authoritarians. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, Brian has certain learned truth from his culture as we all do, right. About the Mm -hmm. AMA or about whatever. And to me, it was very much, you know, if, if you think that Thaddeus, when he's, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm not going to speak for Thaddeus, but like, you know, the world war two thing, sort of questioning Mm -hmm. the standard narrative of world war two, like Mm -hmm. you, I feel is a super valuable intellectual exercise, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I'm going to come away from that and be like, oh, wow, like actually we created the Holocaust. Like that's not the conclusion that I think yeah. best fits. The, <laughs> I don't think that conclusion best fits the data. Right. But in the same way, I think there is there is value in part of what a healthy intellectual ecosystem is that process of, you know, questioning our most sacred cows constantly because mm-hmm. otherwise those assumptions question, creep in. And so, you know, okay, let's question the AMA. I think that, you know, in reality, right, there are definitely problems with the American Medical Association um, if you talk to doctors, right, especially in mm-hmm. terms of who gets to be a doctor, who doesn't get to be a doctor, a set number of slots, you know, there there is an orthodoxy within Western medicine, And, you know, some of that orthodoxy makes sense. Some of that orthodoxy doesn't actually fit the data very well. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we're, I saw you posted that thing about uh, Brogan, um, about her, there was some sort of thing about debunking Kelly Brogan. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 That, um, I was just pointing out that there is the other side. That's a category of topic that I'm not an expert in, but I think 
is extremely important to everyone and we need to tread carefully on it. But vaccinations, things like that ultimately involve all of society. I have a little bit of a libertarian bent. So I'm like, you know, do unto yourself, whatever the hell you want. It doesn't affect me. However, things like vaccines, it absolutely does affect me and mine. Yep. Yep. So we have to really look at it all. Well, and that's the thing I, um, you know, I've been going through Kelly's book because uh, we're interviewing her on Tuesday. And, you know, there were a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that, okay, you have this single variable explanation for mental health. There is a single pill. You think that that's the answer. There's clearly a real problem with that logic. I mean, you oh, know, especially yes. if you've read Sapolsky, like why zebras don't get ulcers, right? You know, mm-hmm. animals in the wild don't have a lot of these problems. Like we were once wild animals and a lot of these problems that we now have in the modern world, like, you know, we didn't, we weren't 600 pounds and, mm-hmm. you know, de- clinically depressed and whatever else. So and Rady and Doidge. Yeah, also. exactly. So there's, I mean, it's, it's clear that there's a lot there. When we got to the vaccine bit, you know, I mean, I have no doubt that vaccines cause injuries, but as a collective bargaining good, as you're saying, right. like that doesn't mean that, you know, we shouldn't make that a basic requirement for membership in a large scale society. It mm-hmm. also doesn't mean we shouldn't try and improve the vaccines or make them safer. Right. Make sure they're good. Really yeah. distill them. Is there a problem with that? Really explore it. Be open-minded. Mm-hmm. Is this vaccine causing problems? Let's track it down. Is there a profiteering angle versus a safety angle? Track it down. But we still need them. Well, polio and was it, a bad thing. Well, it, polio was a terrible thing. And I mean, the, the whole thing is, you know, and also, by the way, polio not only was a bad thing, it's also a bad thing that has now mostly been eradicated. And mm-hmm. smallpox has yes. been eradicated. So, you know, clearly they were able to remove those from the population. And listen as a gift to give to the next generation, if the next generation came in and we'd managed to remove a whole bunch of diseases from the ecosystem, I mean, I think that'd be a great legacy to leave our kids. Um, Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's this, the, I mean, to sort of draw out a theme from this conversation, there is a large tendency among humans to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, you know, it takes real work and it also takes people with different, you know, different perspectives, different biases, different starting points to make sure that we're not doing that. Right. So it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, Kelly, great. Like you have a point, like lots of this sort of stuff, but also, I mean, we have to be realistic. Like Kelly is a human. And as she said, she spent hundreds of thousand dollars, years and years and years internalizing this orthodoxy of medicine only to realize that much of it was wrong and was actually harming patients. At that point, she's then like, well, let's question all the orthodoxies. But, you know, Mm -hmm. she may have overcorrected in some directions. Kind Um, of the reverse of Steve Jobs, who um, would likely be alive today had he had the relatively simple procedure because he had the uh, pancreatic cancer. It was not fatal. The very rare one that people seldom get was not fatal. If you had the surgery, no, he went on, you know, specific diets, things like that. It's, you know, or Bob Marley, go get it treated and they still be alive. So you kind of, you kind of have both. And I feel like there's a, a balance 
that Western medicine can sometimes be extremely good at triage, like, oh my God, it's catastrophic. We got to do something now to try to turn it around. Eastern medicine is so much better on like, let's get your life in order so you don't get the stupid thing to begin with. Yeah. And what we would, what the real opportunity is to sort of hash out the differences between these two medicines. Harmonize. And then ev- yeah. And, and basically evolve a much more effective one. Like what is the cohesive whole of these two perspectives? Let's let Eastern and Western medicine have idea sex. Um, there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think that is absolutely uh, the challenge. But yeah, Steve Jobs is a great example. And I actually know someone who knew his doctors. And, you know, they were very clear that like, you know, he just had an idea and he was going to run with it. And that was, you know, that's, I think what's one of the things that I think is most interesting about humans as a species is that so often our greatest strength is also our Achilles heel. Like mm-hmm. Steve, ha- if Steve had an idea, he was fucking run- running with it and nobody could talk him out of it, which was obviously right. so much of his success with Apple, but it is part of what killed him. Yeah. Focus groups he did not believe in because no. he was introducing things that we'd never seen. Yeah. So that's the kind of personality who would die because, oh, no, I'm going to find a different path. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's that great, uh, Henry Ford quote that if he'd asked the American people what they wanted, they would have said a faster Faster horse. horse. Yeah. (laughs) And you can have any color you like as long as it's black. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, these are, these are strong willed guys. Some might say stubborn. Um, and you know, obviously then when it comes time to listen, you know, they don't listen and they often die. And, you know, I mean, that that was true of Henry Ford as well. Like, he had his whole anti-Semitic pro-Nazi thing. And he, oh, yeah. he, like, ran down that thing for way past when it actually made sense. Oh, we have some uh, interesting people. Speaking of that, do you believe in evil? Um, I, well, I mean, firstly. And how I, would you describe it? Yeah, I, I think, so I think the first thing is, in general, I don't believe in like as a sort of like, you know, 10,000 foot map, like I don't believe in bad people. I believe in bad systems. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like a guy like Freeway Rick Ross, right? Who, you know, uh, popularized crack cocaine in the United States who we had on the podcast. Like, you know, that's a guy who grew up in a neighborhood um, and he couldn't, he got a tennis scholarship, couldn't read or write. So then you know, he was like too embarrassed or whatever to admit that he didn't know how to read or write as a teenager. And so ended up passing up the tennis scholarship and then sort of fell into dealing, you know, crack as a way to make money. And then obviously, you know, he's done like an incredible amount of damage because of that behavior. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I met Rick and I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think that, you know, he he ended up on a path and it went to a whole bunch of places that he didn't intend to do, to go to. Um, I, you know, there are on the other hand, psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, I'm, I'm always a l- little bit like, so, I mean, you know, so much of what I do in terms of, you know, the straight and conspiracy, like my frame of reference is biochemistry and I'm always skeptical of, um, some of the psych, where, you know, these claims are sort of made, like, you know, it's a very crude tool to talk to someone. And then, you know, now I know what's going on in your brain. 
right? Mm -hmm. Based on conversation and say, oh, you're not neurotypical. Um, so, um, you know, I, I would say I don't, you know, supposedly there are psychopaths, supposedly 1% of people are psychopaths. Um, and, you know, supposedly I've heard that they're born with their empathy off, you know, uh, Paul Ekman, who obviously deals with a lot of outliers, definitely has met psychopaths, um, mm -hmm. in his estimation. And I think I've met one. Um, and you know, that dude was, I mean, just like very good at being manipulative. Um, and mm. did a lot of damage. So I think that, you know, if you're, if you're going to talk about evil, like that's the, that's as close as it gets. And I mean, you know, like guys like Ted Bundy, like, you know, I mean, what, what is up with those guys? Was there, was there an environment in which Ted Bundy could have been raised where he wouldn't have behaved the way that Ted Bundy did? I don't know. Um, on the other hand, there was, uh, um, Charles Whitmore, um, who did the Texas A&M shoot. Uh, I think, what was it? Was it Texas A&M? Yeah, he was Way a Texas back, uh, shooter. Yeah, yeah. He had the brain tumor. Yeah, exactly. So then you have a guy like that who was a perfectly normal guy, he got a brain tumor, and now suddenly that's pressing on him, and he, he even understands that his brain is changing dramatically. So I don't think he's a bad guy. Um, that makes me wonder about SSRIs and things with the mass shooters. I mean, uh, well, there may be something there. That's, that's part of what Kelly hints up at um, <laughs> is that you're, you're seriously changing that brain chemistry and that that has all sorts of consequences. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me. I, I don't know that there are, yeah, I, I don't, I think, you know, certainly not the sort of the caricatured ver version of evil. I think, you know, mostly I believe in bad systems. And I think that's the real thing is there's so much low hanging fruit in terms of making a healthier, more effective system. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think you kind of have to see what behavior emerges. Like if we, you know, do things like create a culture that is, you know, based on embracing and fixing our mistakes and that that behavior is encouraged so that people aren't covering it up, right? If we create a culture that values people based on like how much, you know, they contribute to society rather than on how greasy their butt is or <laughs> how much money they have or anything like that. If we start to fix all of those things and then there's just still one asshole, like who, even though we've worked on all this sort of stuff and he just insists upon being an asshole, then, you know, maybe, maybe then, you know, there's not much that we could have done for that person. And then you, but even then you'd have to look at, okay, what's going on with this guy genetically? What's going on with him physiologically? Hmm. Like, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, I'm an educator. So my responsibility is to uh, not write people off. Like th that's my job. I'm always supposed to be looking at you and saying whatever you're doing. Oh, you spend your, you don't do your homework and you spend your time trying to kick me in the nuts. Like rather than just writing you off as like a jerk, right? Like mm -hmm. I have to try and figure out, okay, what's really going on here? Like how can we, you know, change the situation to give you the experience of motivation 3.0. So you're really enjoying your work. You find it worthwhile and that you stop kicking me in the nuts, uh, which was an actual thing that happened with a student. It's a good goal. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it was, you know, and it delivered him a lot of satisfaction every time he would score a nut shot. So there might um, be a few of us who would agree. <laughs> 
that that might have to be a super special Patreon exclusive. Like you have to give like a thousand bucks on Patreon before you get to take one not shot at Toto. <laughs> uh, formerly known as Toto. Formerly known as Toto. On the flip side, do you believe in heroes? Uh, yeah, I think I'm much more comfortable with that. Do I think you there have yeah. any particular. Oh, I have lots of heroes. Um, I mean, Steve Jobs is a hero. Um, I would say Steve Jobs. I mean, increasingly, I understand my dad is more of a hero because I understand that he did very uncomfortable things. Um, you know, I, I, it was, I guarantee you, it was not the sort of easy thing to refuse to sign those books for Arthur Anderson, even if it didn't ultimately lead to, you know, it didn't prevent Enron or prevent any of that sort of stuff. But like sure. the fact that he had the, 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 the clarity to, to not do that. Like, I think that's, that's pretty heroic. Um, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think that, you know, that's, there, there, there are 100% heroes. And then, you know, I mean, obviously the military hero is sort of the most obvious hero or like the astronaut, mm -hmm. right? It's inherently physical. We can see that. But, you know, I think that, you know, someone like Marie Curie who devoted her life to that problem, like that's heroic. Um, you know, I think, you know, in many senses, Brian is a hero and is actually starting to become more heroic because he's taking on this big challenge. Like, if, you know, if you haven't seen his latest special, like he's really like internalized all these ideas for mixed mental arts and is now trying to figure out how to turn them into comedy to get them out there. And that's a big mm -hmm. challenge that he could just be sort of like, you know, on the comedy couch, right? Like Brian has his shtick. He just keeps doing his shtick, but like, he's really trying to figure out like, okay, <laughs> I've got all this great egghead material. How do I make it super accessible and funny? So to me, that's the thing is, is that I would say that, you know, a lot of what heroism is, is the willingness to stand up against the group and mm -hmm. the willingness to take on a big challenge, whatever it is. And, you know, really the willingness to put the the health and well-being of the group ahead of your own interests um, or what's sort of comfortable or easy. Um, I think, yeah, that's that's my idea of heroism. But I think that's the thing they can heroes can show up in any domain of life. Um, right. Well, that's cool. Um, I keep changing directions because I want to make sure I get every everything i can ask in there but <laughs> you you focus obviously on mixed mental arts but you know me pretty well i'm actually very interested in the um, ties between the physicality and the mind um brian is very avidly a very physical person in every way and i've gotten the impression that that isn't your stronger suit you're uh, definitely more the mental side of it would would the giant belly that I'm sporting in YouTube videos give you that idea? <laughs> Honestly, I don't pay attention. You've mentioned that you eat your feelings, yeah. and I yeah. Um, is that really a thing, or is that a tease? Uh, it's you, teasing yeah. myself, but it's definitely really a thing. Um, I mean, I think that you know, I mean, so much of what I've like, you know, we've done 300 episodes, right? But the mm. the whole point of this is, you know 
we have to evolve. So what are sort of the next stages? What are some of the things that are coming up? Well, for me, you know, I, I pursued a goal to the end of the line, right? Like what I picked up from my, from my culture is, is that if, you know, cause humans want status, right. And they want mm-hmm. belonging, right. So, you know, for me, status was being smart. That's what it was about. Mm-hmm. And smart meant book smart. And, you know, those were the things that matter and everything else could go hang. Um, right. And so, you know, I mean, that's that's what I've done for the last 36 years is just obsessively pursue that at the expense of everything else. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, at the end of the, you know, you reach the, you reach, you reach sort of the bottom of that well, and, you know, you've read all the science and, you know, obviously, you know, Descartes' Error is one of the books that I quote most often. So I know how stupid it is to like have this arbitrary disconnect between mind and body. And so mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, well, if there's all this science telling you this, then you have to start to change your own behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think, you know, and then, and I just have like a bunch of old habits I have to unlearn. Um in terms of habits of mind, like, you know, when things get busy or complicated, the first thing that drops out for me is physical fitness and everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have to unlearn those habits. Um, You know, I have been sort of like messing around with kickboxing and tennis for the last couple of years, starting to work my way into that. Uh, Thank you, Brian Callen. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I went rock climbing the other night, which I actually really like because, um, you know, besides the sort of physical, there's like a lot of technical challenges to that, mm-hmm. like knowing how to place your weight, how to create friction so that you sure. get a good handhold. And then there's just the puzzle aspect of mm-hmm. like trying to figure out the route up. And then on top of that, once you're on the wall, you know, you're a, like all these emotions come up. Like there's fear, there's anxiety, there's social threat because everybody's down there and they're watching you and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. am I going to look like an idiot? So, um, you know, then your ability to even puzzle out, like I've had this experience multiple times where, you know, you're on the wall, you seem, you can't figure out how to do it. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, they, they point out to you that just outside of your sort of fear cone, there's a handhold right there that would have sure. gotten you up there. So, I think that's the point is, you know, I mean, I think a large part of, you know, why Brian and I are attracted to each other and a large part of this podcast is that we are fucked up in different ways and Mm -hmm. it is the process of us unfucking each other. So I think that, yeah, 100%, like we just had Andy Galpin on, um, who's a, you know, uh, does a lot of nutrition and fitness stuff. Mm We had Tony Bauer on who does, um, Blauer, sorry, who does, um, you know, self-defense and all of that. We're obviously having Kelly on on Tuesday. So this is one of the, this is, I mean, probably it's definitely one of the biggest areas in which I need to work on myself is, you know, uh, really taking care of my body. So have you thought about walking? Yeah, I love walking. walking. Yeah, I love okay. walking. Um, and I did get a Fitbit, um, that Brian yeah, gave I me. recommend it. Yeah, Brian gave me a free Fitbit, so I've been using that, um, and just even just getting in my it's it's great for you know I mean that's that's the other thing too it's like you know you have these stupid mental ideas like obviously walking is so great for clearing your head organizing your mm-hmm. thoughts so you know it's yeah I mean there's just like there's cultural baggage I have to work through and uh, 
just a lot of stuff that I have to unlearn there and learn better habits. So no Fitbits are awesome because you'll find out that 10,000 steps a day is more difficult than you realize at first. Yeah. It's, and you'll go on a day and go, oh, wow. Yeah. I've been walking a lot today. I've got uh, definitely 10,000. You look down 6,000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially so. in LA cause you're driving so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean like, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's much easier to be, uh, much more sedentary than you're reasoning. Exactly what you said. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's that, but I also, the thing that I've really figured out from kickboxing and from tennis and from, mm-hmm. you know, starting to even do some rock climbing, I did some, um, you know, Tony Molina who I had on the podcast, like I've done a couple of mountains with him. We did, uh, uh, I can't remember. It wasn't uh, Lone Pine Peak. Um, which is a pretty big thing. And that was like, you know, that was definitely a challenge. (laughs) Um, because, you know, I mean, Lone Pine, you know, the, the, the first part of the thing is just a hike. Like it's just a hike. Mm -hmm. Right. And you go up and then you get to this great meadow, there's a lake, all of that. But the bouldering, then there is this bouldering section with a scree slope and all of that. And, you know, that is, it's nerve wracking, honestly. Oh God. And, yeah. You know, being up there, I definitely was like, we'd done some of this stuff before, but I felt nervous. And then coming down that scree slope and, you know, these like having yeah. to tell you which road route to take, because, you know, if there's an avalanche, the avalanche will go this way. So Ugh. yeah. Better so, you than me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've been doing more and more of that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, Tony, they they really do the mountaineering thing a lot. Like they're going to go do Aconcagua again, um, mm-hmm. which is the highest peak in South America. Um, and that's, that's gnarly. I don't know that I'll be doing that. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that doing the Matterhorn, like that would be something I would be interested in doing at some point. Um, definitely Kilimanjaro. Um and then I, you know, I like surfing. It's mostly just, yeah, there's a sort of cultural baggage that I have to unlearn and, you know, rethink about this and just make it a priority. And then B, it is about like, you know, I just, there's a, they have a lot going on right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's being able to find ways to balance it and prioritize it, and make time for it. Yeah. Makes sense. And, Okay, you have over 300 interviews, um, not to mention how many times you've been on other things. Is there an interview that changed your mind or that shocked you? Um, I mean, there's a lot of incremental change, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, that's the real progress process is that, you know, you're hearing these things, hearing these things, hearing these things. And then I think the other thing, too, is, is that very often I've read the book beforehand. So mm-hmm. the book has often changed my mind. And then the conversation is, you know, there are definitely little nuggets and things that you learn in there. But, um, you know, it's often the book that has changed my mind. And there are definitely a lot of these books that have changed my mind. Like The Secret of My Success was like... Uh, the Secret of Our Success. Sorry, The Secret of My Success is a Michael J. Fox mm-hmm. movie. Also a <laughs> also seminal a classic. text. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Secret of Our Success was huge. Um, you know, and then, I mean, honestly, Sowell's book was just like, you know, there's that feeling when you read, like, it's it's that experience of, like, uh, 
so many things start falling into place and maybe mm-hmm. they were sort of in your dim awareness, but like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that was, that was sort of the experience of, of soul. Um, but in terms of like actual conversations, like the Thaddeus Russell, that three parter sort of surprised me in a lot of ways and really crystallized a lot of things. Um, you know, the Peter Schiff interview, honestly, like changed my mind about a lot of things. Um, but about like approach, not about like Peter Schiff's worldview, uh, because, you know, I, I, at that point, I'd just been, you know, doing a lot of these interviews, reading a lot of these books and, you know, uh, Abdel Bayoud, um, you know, who is sometimes in the Facebook group, you know, had said, you have to get Peter Schiff on. And so I mm-hmm. looked at Peter Schiff's stuff and, you know, it was like, there was all the gold bug stuff there was, you know, whatever other stuff. I can't even remember what I read all those years ago. And I was just like, I know how this is going to go. You know, I'd interviewed Tom Woods and I was like, how, how, how does this ever leave to any helpful solution? I'd had all these comments from, you know, listeners who, you know, thought that Tom Woods like crushed us, Brian and me in the debate. And I was like, that wasn't really what happened. That wasn't our experience. We were just trying to give the guy the chance to say Mm -hmm. his piece. And like, so, you know, I, I tried to do something different, which was to send Peter, you know, sort of this breakdown of, you know, sort of about Adam Smith's other book. That's what a lot of it was about. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what did that mean? Um, and, you know, he, his assistant didn't send it to him or he didn't read it. And then, you know, the first part of the interview is just sort of Peter going on his shtick, like his standard shtick. And, you know, then it was trying to figure out how to push back on that. Mm -hmm. And obviously it was a clusterfuck. Like that conversation was such a clusterfuck. And, um, you know, like on the one hand, I think that, you know, many of Peter's ideas don't hold up if you test them enough. But on the other hand, like that wasn't a satisfying experience for Peter Schiff, right? Like it's right. not like Peter Schiff was after that was like, oh my God, that was so great. Let's do that again. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're ultimately not uh, like it. And, you know, Peter Schiff's fans like listen to that and then they're like, you're just a dick. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, it, that that didn't solve the problem. So, like, trying to figure out, okay, if that's if that's not going to be the thing, how how are we going to move forward, or how are we going to do this? You know, the Rogan interview was like a, obviously a big one for me, not just because of the mm-hmm. things that Joe and I talked about, but just because it's fucking Rogan, um, mm-hmm. and you know, having that many eyes on you suddenly um, is a, a whole different experience. Um, so, I mean, there have been a lot of conversations that I think are pretty sort of seminal in my development um, mm-hmm. and definitely books and ideas. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, I can't in general, I can't endorse podcasting enough. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's great that you're doing a podcast, um, you know, and I think that's the thing. I mean, that's why even like the spinoff thing or like the, the broken satellite, like I, I, <laughs> I think that's that's part of what's interesting and part of what we're we're still in the early days of podcasting, and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, 
I stumbled into it, right? Like the Brian Callen show was a spinoff of Joe Rogan, right? Like Mm -hmm. Rogan was having success with it. He encouraged his buddy Brian to do it. Brian was doing this podcast. I stumbled into it because it was an Mm -hmm. excuse for us to like have conversations with people for, you know, most of those episodes, we were just trying to like have exposure to people that we thought were interesting. We didn't know what we were doing. And I think that, you know, the way things are going is that, you know, so much of it is that you, you're you doing a podcast and there there are things that you have felt or observed, like the sort of, that, you know, often listeners are better at picking out than you are because you don't mm-hmm. see the log in your own eyes. So even this thing about how much of what we've been doing is being driven by guilt, like that theme, it's mm-hmm. not, I mean, you know, I, I thought a little bit about that, but that was the most clearly I'd heard that articulated. And I now have to go away and think about that, honestly, Eric. Um, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. So, but that experience I think is incredibly healthy because what you're, what you end up doing is you end up, you know, you talk for that many hours, you end up laying a lot of your thoughts bare. And then all these other humans who you don't know and who don't have any real skin in the game there, like they connect dots that you hadn't thought to connect. So they're like, you should talk to this person. You should talk to this person. Um, or they see things about you that you don't necessarily want to see about yourself. Like there's real value to being on YouTube and having that belly hanging out. And then there's just the YouTube shit posts that are like, <laughs> dude, da, da, da. and then, you know, I mean like that's, that's honest. Like you don't have to, you know, there's no hiding it. And so then you're like, okay, some shit needs to change. And if you can get comfortable with that experience of unsolicited feedback, um, mm-hmm. it's actually a really, really positive experience. So uh, I, th- but I, but I think that a lot of it is, is that the pieces are already rattling around in your head mm-hmm. and then you're adding in some new pieces. And then it's really that process of sort of synthesizing and putting it all together. And that's the real interesting journey of doing a podcast for a long time. And then you start to increasingly figure out what is it that we're actually trying to do here? What is our show? And, you know, you have all the old models of how things should be done or what we're going to be doing. And, you know, ultimately, even though we began as a spinoff of Rogan, I think we're evolving to something quite different from Rogan. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's going to be the same thing for... Uh, you know, your podcast or anybody else's podcast, like you will find out what it is. Like you will find out what unstructured is and it will just emerge and evolve and reveal itself. And that's really how I think about things is, is that, Mm -hmm. you know, often they're already there, but they do have to emerge and they do have to reveal themselves. And, you know, if you want to call the, it being already there, God, then I'm cool Mm -hmm. with that. Do you ever worry about that, though, um, about what MMA may be or not be in terms of community? And what I'm noticing is there's some of the smartest or most intelligent people I have seen gathered in one spot. Um, Do you ever feel that it may become slightly elitist and others may feel overwhelmed and afraid to actually comment in there or, or participate because they just don't feel like, Oh, uh, I'm not well read enough. I'm not educated enough. They're not like me. I'll I'll just say what I think and too bad. Well, I think that's the point is I think that if we're responsive to the evidence, like that's the point, if you're smart, you should respond to the evidence. Right. And part of that 
evidence is, is that, you know, if you want to get smarter, so it's great, you came in, you're smart, but you want to get smarter. That's part of why you're here. And part of how you get smarter is, I think, a couple of things. One, if you really have knowledge that other people don't have, then teach it to other people. Share that knowledge. And the best way to learn is to teach. So, okay, great. You know this thing. Share it with other people. Um, You know, help them up their game. You know, and if you really understand this stuff, you, you know, it's, it's Einstein's thing. If you, you know, that everything should be so simple, you can explain it to a five-year-old. If you really get mm-hmm. these ideas, you should be able to break it down for anyone. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, you know, uh, part of what I think MMA is evolving towards and, you know, what I'm actively trying to evolve it towards is away from this idea of smart talk. Um, mm-hmm. which is a concept that Adam Hansen stole from uh, some guy at Stanford whose name I haven't learned yet. Um, but basically smart talk is where we all sit around and we all have smart ideas. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. every pundit show you've ever seen. And then it never translates into action. So for me, I don't want MMA to just be a Facebook group where we all show off how smart we are because it's dick measuring. Like, and I think dick measuring is boring. Like if it, I want it to be pragmatic, like, okay, great. We have these ideas. How can we use them to materially improve the world? Like that's supposed to be the dialectic of science, theory, practice. What does practice tell us? Oh, it tells us the theory is wrong. It needs to iterate. Oh, theory, practice, theory, practice, theory, practice. And so that's really what it has to become. And I think that, you know, very much sort of like, you know, what you said, the army marches on its stomach, right? Mm-hmm. The, the reality is that we all have a very limited sphere of reference. And so, you know, we're only as good as the insight we have. And the story that I sort of love for this is um, Bob McLean. So uh, Bob McLean is the guy who invented the uh, containerized shipping, so all those big oh, shipping, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, the point is, he was a truck driver, and mm-hmm. he saw a problem as a truck driver that no one else saw, which was we spent all of our time lining up with our trucks, waiting to be unloaded. And it's super inefficient, and so he kept on trying to tell the higher ups, like, "There's this problem. There's this problem. There's this problem." The higher ups thought they were so smart and thought they were so much smarter than everybody else, and so they're like, "Whatever, Bob McLean." So Bob goes away and. <laughs> He starts a company and he starts trying to solve this problem. And at first, you know, he, he doesn't get it quite right. Like you're lifting the whole truck onto the ship and then you're transporting the engine and all this other stuff you don't need to transport. And then he figures out containerized shipping. Then, you know, he revolutionizes the world. Like so much of oh, our yeah. world relies on containerized shipping. He made billions of dollars. So I think that's the interesting thing is, is that, you know, the, the, I th- think there are a lot of strong personalities in MMA And there are definitely a lot of strong personalities that think they're smart, and I'll include myself in this, but like the really interesting group is the one where the people who don't normally speak and the people who are the Bob McLeans who have insights that, you know, we're not exposed to start speaking up and sharing insights that we haven't heard, we haven't thought of, because that's when you start to get a really healthy community and you start to have it be really, really innovative. And... 
you know, creating that kind of community is what interests me because that community is really generative and really insightful and will solve a lot more problems. And if it, if it, if the group remains smart talk by a small number of people, then mm -hmm. it's just going to be one giant dick measuring contest. And, you know, so you I, fear that then right now? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a real danger. Um, and you Mob know, mentality arts. Yeah, exactly. I do not want that. And, you know, so we have to, I mean, it, it requires deliberately reframing the culture and defining what our values are, right? Our values come on practically solving problems. Our values come on being inclusive. Our values come on drawing people into the conversation who maybe haven't said much. Um, and, you know, Adam Hansen does that really, really well. Yes, he's but good about that. He's amazing at that. Like having done a bunch of conference calls and stuff like that with Adam and done a few podcasts, a couple of podcasts with him, you know, he just is really good at tracking the room, seeing who's speaking, see who's not speaking. And then he'll just be like, and what do you think? So-and-so. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because Adam is responsive to the evidence about how innovation works and that it is about drawing the whole group in, drawing everybody's insights in. And, you know, I think that's that's part of what I'm excited for for this next phase of mixed mental arts is becoming much more intentional about us applying, you know, not just the stuff on like, you know, innovation and all of that, where it's not that uncomfortable for me to adopt a lot of the sort of an insights that Adam Hansen is talking about, but also, mm -hmm. you know, leaning much more into the things that I am much more uncomfortable with, like my belly, which, you know, <laughs> I make fun of deliberately to shine a light on so that the mm -hmm. whole group knows and so that the group mm -hmm. can call me out on that. Well, teasing and humiliation can be really close. So yeah. it's always a careful thing. And if you tease yourself, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but I understand how it can be a sensitive topic. I mean, yeah. I, I've been there. Yeah. Now, on that note, what question do you wish I asked Ooh. in this interview? Um, let's see if you, I'm, I'm just sort of really going with the Eric Hunley oyster model of podcast interviewing. Like if you were going <laughs> to open me up and find some pearl that nobody else had found. Um, I think, uh, the real, um, Yeah, I think I think the real the real pearl, like the thing to ask if you really want to crack me open, is to talk about what I fear. Um, that was my next question. Well, then there you go. You you found it. You found it. <laughs> what question do you most fear that I ask? Well, I think the thing that I most fear is, uh, you know, becoming my father, and I don't think that I mean that in terms of who my father is today, but mm -hmm. you know, who my father was, um, early in my childhood. Um, so, you know, I mean, M Mike, big Mike once said of my father that my father had an IQ at the top of Everest and an EQ at the bottom of the Marianas trench. Um, <laughs> 
And, you know, my father, you know, people who meet my father, they're always like, he's a very smart guy, very smart guy. But like he didn't, he, he hasn't yet had the chance to practically do a lot of what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's the thing that I don't want. Like I don't want in my life. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, honestly, like that's, that's, you know, I mean, I can even feel the physicality of it. Like that's the knee jerk thing that I sort of most react against. And mm -hmm. that's not healthy. Like, you know, just being in reaction to that. I have to like, that's one of the things that I sort of have become more and more aware of and that I have to work through is, you know, being okay with, I mean, I, I a, have to balance out my life, B, so that it's much more well-rounded and then B, not just be so terrified of not achieving what I want that like I'm just blindly like rushing around mm -hmm. trying to make sure that things are happening. So, um, you know, Tony Blower, who talks a lot about fear and he has, um, he had this t-shirt on that Brian then proceeded to doodle on, uh, before the <laughs> podcast, but you know, it said fuck fear and then fuck is an acronym for like, I can't remember what it is, but it's like face it, understand it, confront it, know it. I think that might've actually been the acronym. And so the point is, is that I, you know, I fear like, you know, being smart without actually, actually really achieving things and like fixing mm -hmm. real world problems. But I have to move from sort of being afraid of it to facing, understanding, confronting, and knowing that fear so that I can mm -hmm. actually work through it. Um, and I think that's like my, that's, that's the, the most vulnerable, uncomfortable thing for me. Um, so if you want, if you want things that, that if you want to, if you want to crack open this, this oyster, that's, that's, I think the, the no, I just want to talk yeah. to you as a friend. Well, I and know, but it. I'm not, you know, listen, uh, the reality is I don't think that, you know, you're going <laughs> to, this is going to be released and then <laughs> it's going to, the, the caption's going to be the explosive Hunter Mott's interview that no one else got. Um, but I hate that. Yeah. That yeah. Whole, it's so silly. Uh, such and such smashes, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, that's goofy. And I don't feel this way at all. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to just know you as a yeah. person. Well, and I think that to me, that's, that's, that's what I want mixed mental arts to be. Like if we really get to know each other and like actually mm -hmm. hash out our differences and talk about, you know, our insecure, like that goes so far towards making the world a healthier place. Trust. Yeah. And yes, I did read The Culture Code too. It's amazing. It's a great book. <laughs> and it's it really is that simple. And like, you know, that's also what, you know, markets rely on. Markets rely on trust. And if we could build trust, then there's no problem that team human can't solve. Um, and that's that's what we have to build. And we have the we have the tools to do that. You know, we could sit, I mean, you're in Hampton Roads. Yes. Yeah, you know what, 3,000 miles away from me? Mm -hmm. And we're talking face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And what what is this technology for if not humans building trust between each other? Well, that's a perfect way to end this. <laughs> and um, people can contact you at Hunter Mott on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Mixed Mental Arts, also on Twitter. And Facebook, is it Mixed Mental Arts, like slash Mixed Mental Arts? Yeah, I think so. I believe so. And is the website officially MixedMentalArts.online? 
That is correct. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for opening up me up like an oyster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, I, I just, uh, for, for anybody out there listening, I think the experience of podcasting is incredibly valuable. And uh, if you want to start up a podcast, I would strongly encourage it. Well, thank you very much. I have branded myself Toto, right? Yeah. Pull back the curtain. So the question is, what's going to most pull back through the curtains and, you know, make... Uh, Dude, if I, if, I, if I had shaggy hair and I was yeah. a tiny dog, yeah. but I was still human, I still wouldn't call myself Toto. It's so, <laughs> it's so un-macho, I can't even take it. Toto. You sound like the guy, you sound like the twink <laughs> in a gay bar that's in a cage dancing that you can pay like $300 to squeeze. <laughs> Who wants to squeeze Toto? Step on up here. This young college boy is as smooth as the waters he swims in. Toto, gentlemen. He's your fantasy. The words Whoa. I can't are not in his dictionary. Come on down the yellow brick road. Or a certain brick road. Or a certain road. Either way, this kid is sexy. <laughs> okay, well, so much for my nickname. I can never use that again. Toto. It's also Toto's, by the way, the name of a toilet brand. Yeah. It's pretty unfortunate. No, we got it all. <laughs> That's right. He'll be anything you want to be. A shaggy dog, a smooth boy, whatever it is you like. So, he says yes to everything, gentlemen, if the price is right. Step on up. Toto's in a cage. Please wear gloves when you feel them out. <laughs> okay. Sorry. No, it's all right. Keep going. Uh, so.